0: Else feel like this is the longest two weeks of their lives. My family and I had a trip to Boracay scheduled supposedly last week, but Omicron had other ideas.
1: I hate this virus.
0: Sending out virtual hugs to all the moms who are taking care of their households right now, making sure their families are safe and healthy. And to all the moms who can't hug and kiss their children right now, an especially tighter hug team. I feel like we're all losing our minds at different levels at the same time. And I guess that's comforting. And that is the fact of the mother. So let's start off the year with a bang on the podcast. Let's get real and talk COVID-19 with none other than Dr. Susan P. Mercado, Special Envoy of the President on Global Health Initiatives. Dr. Mercado has a career in healthcare spanning decades and was once the highest ranking Filipino woman in the World Health Organization. Listen in on the conversation as she breaks down COVID-19 and Omicron, vaccines and how they work inside us, and how important the role of a mother is in these unprecedented times. I'm so glad that you agreed to guest on my podcast because I have been looking for somebody who could shed light on these crazy, unprecedented times. Right, as a mother, and Doc, I, I I know that you know you're you're well known for not just giving um, lectures and 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 engaging in public speaking activities uh, online, but I know that you're also a really good listener. I hope so, yes. <laughs> yeah, and because you're a mom, Doc, you're a mom, and you know you communicate really well with the public. And as a fellow mom, one mom to another, Doc, I just want to say like. I'm so tired. Like, I'm so tired. I feel like the past two years have been, have been I've just been like dodging <laughs> balls left and right. No, but I, I wanted to, to ask you about this virus. And it keeps changing, no, Doc? Especially now.
1: It's in the nature of viruses mm-hmm. change. They're quite unstable. They're very, very primitive forms of life. So if human beings can live, for 100, 110 years, a virus actually in particular SARS-CoV-2 can only live in the body for about 10 days. Um, I think for Omicron, it might even be shorter. You know, the, 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 earlier, the earlier variants like alpha, what we know is that after the 10th day, you can't culture it from the, from, from the specimen. So when you do the test. Right, you could get remnants or fragments of the virus. But if you put it in a Petri dish and try to make it grow, it won't grow after 10 days. So they're 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 very primitive, very unstable. They're they're almost parasitic. They need, they need a host to live in. Um many of the viruses, well, this particular one, SARS coronavirus too, cannot live in the environment for more than a few hours i would say we don't know that we don't know how long it lives so um so that in that sense it's very changeable it changes but i think what was really difficult for humanity has been that because it's a new virus our bodies don't recognize it so our bodies don't recognize it and therefore our bodies go haywire it's like something unfamiliar cause Caused a lot of inflammation, and that's actually what killed people from the from the start. So now, okay. I think with with uh, human beings have more having more experience with the virus and with the vaccines, which actually introduce the virus into the body in a very weak form or in a form that's um, like the virus but not necessarily the virus then the human body is able to fight it. So it's in the nature of these microorganisms to be changeable.
0: I have never heard of, um, I've never heard somebody put it that way, Doc, about vaccines and how uh, the vaccines are actually that, like a weaker form of the virus that your body will be introduced to because it's so foreign, COVID. And so that when you do come in contact with a virus, you know how to fight it. I've never heard it explained that way. And because of that explanation, am I right to to conclude, Doc, that maybe we have inhaled or maybe a droplet has like entered our body and we just happen to have fought it. can Can that be a possibility? Think about measles.
1: So your mom right? Think about measles. If you have had, measles, or you were vaccinated against measles, then you have antibodies against measles. And if you're pregnant, then your antibodies in your newborn child are there for about six months, six to nine months. But after that, the antibodies from the mom slowly disappear. And that's why you have to give your your child a measles shot. And the measles shot is in fact an inactivated virus. It's the virus, but it's like, weak and it's so weak that it causes it it gives your body an opportunity to recognize it but it does not make you very sick because the virus has been manipulated and this is what what has been done with with the vaccine so for the vaccines I believe Sinopharm and Sinovac are weakened forms of the virus the mRNA uh, vaccines are a little different in, in the sense that They took a part of the virus, the part that connects to the body, and that's what they introduce in your body. And your your body then says, oh, you know, what's this? And starts attacking it, but knows what it is. So therefore, you're giving your body a memory so that if you get infected, the body knows exactly what to do. When SARS-CoV-2 first appeared, our bodies did not know what to do with it. So what happened was people got the infection. then, unfortunately, for the earlier forms of, of SARS-CoV-2, that form of the virus went down to the lungs and caused pneumonia. And it also circulated and went to other parts of the body, to the kidneys, to the heart, to the brain, etc. And our bodies in sort of like a protest against. His foreign invasion started throwing off inflammatory cells, and so what? What the result was? People were dying because of the severe inflammation. It's like a whole allergy all over your in all of your cells. parang no? nagwawala yung yung Now, Omicron is a little bit different, and and I think this this we need to understand that. This virus is, this form of the virus, you inhale it, it goes to your throat or your nose and it stays there and it, that becomes its happy place. So it stays in the throat and in the airway and it does not go down to the lungs so far, right? So whatever I'm telling you right now could change tomorrow, but what we know about this virus is about a month old. It was announced by the World Health Organization on December six. So it's just a month that we know about this, but it doesn't go down to the lungs. And therefore, the infection is, um, is milder in many, many cases. I'm not saying that it could not re- result in severe illness, but in most cases, and particularly if you're vaccinated, it's just there in your throat and in your airway. And that's why it's also highly transmissible, because it, it, it's easier to, to move it out of your throat than it is to move it out of your lungs.
0: Oh, that's why it's highly transmissible.
1: Yes, so it it multiplies seventy times faster than Delta in the throat.
0: I don't understand, Doc, why people are scared to get a COVID vaccine. Why is there so pushback? Okay, so I think I would say there are probably three
1: types of pushback. Um, one is people it's new you know it's something new and the the vaccine is actually under emergency use authorization only all of the studies have not been completed but millions of people billions of people have used the vaccine but it, that was that's a function of process for approval you know it, it it's like a requirement and the world needed a vaccine right away, and actually the technology for mRNA was present years back. So people scientists were working on this, but we're not applying that particular technology to this particular strain of corona. And so there are some who feel that because it's emergency use authorization and it's not commercially available, you can't sell it, that it's not net safe. So that's one. Um, so, so new, right. A second one would be there are, I would say, well, not in the Philippines, but I'm here in the United States and um, in, in many developed countries, there are really people who believe that this is part of a conspiracy and then that actually there's no COVID and that the vaccine is actually a way of delivering some kind of weird thing into your body to control you. So, there are anti vaxxers who, who really feel that this is you know, part of some grand scheme to, to destroy humanity. Um, there would be, I would say, a third kind, which would be folks who have doubted vaccines from the beginning. So I know that there are there are people who feel that vaccines cause, and I, I don't want to repeat um, the false claims, but I'm just going to say that there's not lots of misinformation and factoids out there about vaccines having side effects side effects that are very debilitating and they just don't want to have their kids vaccinated at all
0: yeah i i i was i was one of the the third kind <laughs> i was i was before i had kids i have you know cousins who who staunchly believe talaga na you know, your body has what it needs to be able to to heal itself and you don't need any um, vaccines like that. And, you know, you, be, you, you're, you can be immune for life after you get sick that one time. But, you know, as soon as you have kids and you start to think of, but you don't want that on you as a parent. If you could have avoided it, right? If you could have avoided it, then it really is the way to go. So. I appreciate you breaking down those, those three kinds of pushback though.
1: Before the onset of vaccinations, hundreds and thousands of children would die in infancy because they'd get sick and people couldn't treat them or cure them. So measles, for example, can kill your child. And people have forgotten that. That measles can kill your child, but when I was in training at the Philippine General Hospital, my first death experience was a three-year-old who had measles and died. And so these these, especially the the, the um, childhood diseases, so measles, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, um, they uh, influenza, they really used to wipe out. Children before they reach their first birthday. Now, with the onset of vaccines, we have been able to bring children across the first year of life by giving them additional protection. And that protection is just introducing a wee bit of, of, um, of a, uh, a microbe that the body recognizes, begins to recognize, so that if the child... Does get measles later on? The body knows it's measles. I'm going to kill you, right? So, 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 vaccines have what should I say? a Very profound impact on on our our life as as human beings. Prior to this, and or even polio. Now, in my childhood, I had friends who had polio, and they had braces. You know they they walked around in crutches or they had a brace on one leg because at that time vaccination in the sixties vaccination was um was not widely used until the seventies and so for those who have forgotten it, it's like why are we doing this why do we have you know why do we why give our children this well this is a century or more of experience in, in in medicine for children that these diseases can really kill them, wipe them out, and the vaccine is, I would say, the most effective means of prevention that's ever happened in public health. I would say there there are like three three major developments in in modern medicine, right? One would be vaccination. A second would be antibiotics. And then a third one would be anesthesia. So can you imagine a world, right, where there were no vaccines, there's no anesthesia, and there are no antibiotics, no antibiotics right? So, so modern medicine is built around those three. Modern medicine, as we know it, is built around those three, right? So what came later was now the, the diseases of um, what we call chronic illnesses, so diabetes. Heart disease, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But before, before the 1800s, before people started looking at understanding that diseases were caused by microbes or biological agents, um, we were losing. People, young children died. They were just dying. You, if you, if if you go back to your own family history. Right, And go back to the Lola of the Lola and so on. They'll tell you they had ten children and four of them died, or something like that. I mean, so unthinkable to us, but vaccination is a foundation for health of today's children
0: and because we're on the topic of vaccines though we're we're happy that we can have some teenagers vaccinated as well. What makes the vaccine unsafe for um children? younger is it because it's so new no studies yet yes i would say that's the main barrier if you ask me in the future
1: what this will be like we will develop a vaccine i mean we i mean the scientific community will develop a vaccine for kids because that's the direction that's the trajectory of all vaccines you want to give it if 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 it's stable and, and it's under control and it doesn't mutate that much you want to give it as early as possible so that you have lifelong immunity we're not there yet so right now why can't they give it to younger kids because we don't have enough studies and what what was the driving force behind giving it to older persons first was in the early days of covid-19 the deaths were among older people. So all of the studies focused on that. How do you prevent deaths? So so now that, you know, vaccines have been developed for older persons, then they're moving, you know, slowly to the younger ages. So for the youngest population, for newborns, et cetera, we don't have that yet, I don't think there are enough studies but i'm very sure that people are studying that as we speak how to, how to how to make that happen
0: it, do you think the covid vaccine like down the line of course do you think the covid vaccine for infants will be like the routine ones that we get for our babies when when they're when they're newborns part of the polio's and the dpt's of the, of right. the
1: world I, i'm sure that will be the, that's the vision i'm sure that's the so vision so here
0: to stay covid is going to be it's here to stay, like there's going to be this COVID.
1: Well, you know the coronavirus. So interestingly, the coronavirus is one of the oldest viruses and the most common viruses. Um, it's different from the flu, which is caused by the influenza virus. This one is the corona virus, and the coronavirus is is a virus of cats, dogs, pigs, camels, bats, ducks you know, so many creatures have coronavirus, but the form of coronavirus that they have is very mild. So in humans, the coronavirus causes a great percentage of the common cold. So you get a cold, it's coronavirus, you get a cold, and um, you recover from it. So it's one of those viruses that sort of coexists with its host, happily coexisting with its host, because If a virus is too lethal and it kills its host, then it dies too, right? So, um, coronavirus, now all viruses are species specific, meaning the coronavirus of a cat cannot become the coronavirus of a human being unless it mutates. And it can only mutate if it meets a human coronavirus, like a cat coronavirus and a human coronavirus meet each other and they decide to become a little flirtatious and say, let's level up, right? Let's level so up. Sort of <laughs> so, so, okay. so, so they level up and they level up when they level up. That's when a new form of a virus is formed. And that's the one becomes, that becomes lethal to the higher form of the animal. So, so, for example, for us, for human beings, the theory is that it really resembles and comes out of a bat coronavirus but it's the bat coronavirus mixing with the coronavirus of a human being. So, for example, if you slaughter the bat, all right? You're going to eat the bat, you slaughter the bat, and in the in the fluid, let's say of the nose or whatever part of the body of that bat, the one who's butchering it has a common cold. And there's a mixing of those two viruses. Then they can create mutate to form a new thing that infects the human, and that's what SARS-CoV-two is about. It's a mutation from a coronavirus of an animal, a wild animal, and a coronavirus of of a, a human being. MERS coronavirus was uh, a camel virus mixing with the virus of a human being. SARS, the first, the first, the first, uh, the first infection. Which was in 2003, came from the civet cat. The civet cat is like a delicacy in China.
0: Yes. And they
1: carry the coronavirus too, right? So um, that, that's the thing, right? It's like the, the species specific virus mm-hmm. is actually harm, has minimal harm Mm-mm. to the human being. Um, and it is when you have a cross or a leap from one species to another because two different coronavirus species uh, (laughs) come together and form a new one. That's crazy, Doc. I was looking at how many viruses are there in the universe, right?
0: Tell me. I would love to know how many viruses are there.
1: Something like 100 million for every star in the galaxy. <laughs> An estimated 10, non-million, 10 to the 31st power of individual viruses exist on our planet, enough to assign one to every star in the universe, 100 million times over.
0: I want to know, Doc, how, or if you were at all, dumbfounded by, by this whole virus. Three years, two and a half years ago. Like when it first started, when the news first started reporting about it, how it was such a mystery virus. Like what were your initial thoughts as somebody of, you know, with your experience in healthcare? Well,
1: I was in the World Health Organization in 2003 when the first SARS virus appeared. And The one who first did the swab for, you know, so so what happened was SARS came from the southern part of China, but there was a hospital in Vietnam where there was a rumor that the children were dying. And one of our colleagues who worked at WHO in the regional office um, was in Vietnam, assigned to the country office in Vietnam. And. It's a very interesting guy. Uh, His name was Carlo Urbani. He used to ride a bicycle and go around and work on school health and things like that. So he went to this hospital and he did the swabs of these children who were in that particular hospital in Vietnam. There was a big hush-hush about it because nobody knew why these children were, were dying. And it was that sample that was used to identify sars at that time in two thousand and three, um, and Carlo died. He got he he took the sample. He didn't know what he was. He, of course, he had a mask, I guess, right? But we didn't know how serious it was, and he he paid with his life. You know, he 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 died. He was um, was a medivac to, to Bangkok after a week or two, but that sample that he took showed us and it spread. That spread to Taiwan, it spread to Hong Kong, it spread to Singapore, Canada. That one was the first salvo of corona. And so at the back of our heads, now it it was different, a little bit different. Um, it didn't spread like uh like like this one, but it was very deadly. At that point, and you know, in the beginning, it was hush, hush, like, what's going on here? You know what? It's all rumors, and you couldn't validate anything. And so we knew that this was the start of something different. Then in 2012 oh sorry, in 20, 2016, I think, in 2016, the Middle East respiratory uh, respiratory virus. MERS-CoV, mers Middle East Respiratory Coronavirus, which came from a camel, spread to Korea. And in that year, I was in Korea. I was in Korea when the news broke that it was spreading in the, you know, the most, uh, what should I say, the most elite hospital of Korea and that people were dying. And I was at the airport at that time. I couldn't understand I could see on the news that people were wearing masks and so on I couldn't understand. and uh, fortunately, because we travel with masks. So when you're in the World Health Organization and you travel, you have a kit. So I had a mask with me. um and it was precisely because of SARS because it, at the back of our heads we 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 just have we just trained to anticipate that wherever you're going in the world, you never know when an infectious disease can can strike. And so I was in Korea at that time, and I called uh, Manila and called my Korean colleagues and asked them what's going on, right? So they said, oh, you know, this, 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 this. So I said, am I flying? Am I not flying? Whatever. And on that week, hundreds of people died in, in the Republic of Korea, and they're quite advanced in their care, But, you know, things happen. Okay. So I was not surprised. Um, In fact, a few years before this, in 2018, 2017, I helped the Philippine Red Cross set up what we called the Public Health Emergencies Program, because I had said to Senator Gordon, you know, we're good at disasters in the Red Cross, but one of these days we're going to get hit by by an infection. And if we get hit by an infection, we need people trained. We need to know, we need to be ready, you know, to do what we need to do, so on and so forth. And so the year after that, in 2019, there was an avian influenza outbreak in central Luzon. And we could see that you know okay so this training is helpful blah 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 and then there was a polio outbreak and then there was a measles outbreak in the Philippines and then there was uh, COVID nineteen so I would say that I know or we knew in public health that this wouldn't happen but actually and I don't wanna I know I don't have a crystal ball but this virus is not yet. The one that could wipe out a huge part of humanity, and the fact that we have a vaccine is already a step in the direction of it's going to come under control. When I was under Secretary of Health in the late 1990s, our Secretary of Health, uh, Doctor Quasi Romaldes, who was the one who set up the Research Institute for Tropical Medicine was already saying we have to have several of these because if there is an outbreak you need that high level of laboratories to be able to create enough testing okay so we had one compared to Japan's 200 Singapore's dozens etc cetera, etc cetera, right and so remember in the early days we had to send the samples to Japan and to Australia do you remember that
0: yeah first- yeah
1: yeah huh? right it's like I was like, when I heard that, I said, oh my gosh, we can't do it. What's going on, right? Okay, so that's why that was an early handicap for us. But Mm -mm. the Red Cross quickly established level two laboratories with the support of the, I mean, in partnership with the government. And so, you know, after a couple of months, we were able to have more than 100 laboratories for testing, but we're 110 million people in an archipelago. And so the, the the capacity for testing using the RT-PCR was very, very limited in the beginning because we did not invest in the public health infrastructure for testing. And, and that's, you know, and in that time when I was in the Department of Health, we had already plans to set up a Centers for Disease Control where all the surveillance could be done. And... We also had plans which were already in at the level of a floor plan for vaccine production. That was in 1998. But I guess, you know, as the leaders change, the priorities are lost. And so and we find well, ourselves, right yeah, we, we find ourselves in a pandemic where we don't have the laboratories that are necessary for testing or for creating. Or or a manufacturing plant for vaccines. So we we're at the mercy of the countries that do produce it. So I understand now that money has been generated to produce vaccines. That'll take a couple of years, but that's necessary. So and we need the laboratory infrastructure. We only have one genome center in the country. So you know, it's like. How many tests can they run at the University of the Philippines in a week? Maybe two thousand. If we're wondering why we can't get the numbers on, is it Omicron or is it Delta? It's because they're just doing random sampling. But if we had many genome testing centers, then then we could target right and find out what's going on in different places. So the public health infrastructure for a pandemic is very important and. Despite everything that's happening right now, we still have to prepare and have to look at this. So in my in my head, I think the vaccination program that we need for COVID-19 should be a 6-year plan. 6-year plan. Yeah. Because right now we're like, okay, let's try to vaccinate everyone we can. As if as if that is going to be enough. No, it's not. So you can see, you know, I I monitor three countries most of the time. Uh, Singapore, the Republic of Korea, and Israel. So, I look at what's happening in other countries because it gives you an idea where we're going. And earlier on, I was already saying that we should start preparing for childhood vaccinations because that's the trajectory. That's what the rest of the world is doing. And you know, the, the answer I got was, "Well, we don't have an approved vaccine." And I said, "Well, are we going to wait until we have an approved vaccine before we set up the program?" Because it's, it's more complicated with children. You have to get the parents on board. You have to have a system for monitoring them. Because they're smaller and they're more vulnerable, you need to have you know, really good feedback mechanisms if you're giving the vaccine to many kids. Unlike adults who can complain, younger kids can't, right? So it then depends on the, the um, competence of the mother. And among the highly educated, okay, we're good. But for the great majority of people, it's like they're having difficulty already with problems like nutrition or even education at home to get them to monitor what happens after vaccination. Oh, my goodness. So preparation for that is needed. And now investing in teaching. So this is why your podcast is important, right? It's like investing on teaching parents and mothers about this is of fundamental importance. because it's the moms who will be able to make sure that the kids are protected but if we're not doing that and we're just waiting for an announcement or saying how many new cases there are we're not enabling we're not enabling solutions a big answer you know part of the solution a big part of the solution and and a big part of the answer to our our situation is really to empower families and moms in particular
0: now that we're on that topic Let's say moms who are listening, you know, they're, 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 their kids have symptoms, maybe it's Omicron. What should you do as a mother for your family in these times?
1: Okay, so right now, if a child is sick and there's an adult who's sick in the house, I would assume that it's COVID. I'd make that assumption. And so that means that everyone in the house should self isolate. And make sure that the very vulnerable ones like grandparents and so on, people with illness, are also, if you can. See, this is the the tricky part, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: We can say isolate in the house, but we do know that most people don't have that luxury. It's a luxury. People should stay home. And I think we all have to hunker down at this point because this is like a storm that's going to blow over. From the experience of South Africa, Omicron lasted about four weeks. Of course, the geography of South Africa is quite different. It's sort of like very confined. With an archipelago, we might see um, spikes in waves in different places, but they're not going to last long. Um, Could be five, six weeks, four would be minimum. But while it's raging, which starts now, and these next two weeks, just stay home. Like, don't even look at the alert level. Just don't leave the house, because it's around. I mean, the way the way the, the the numbers are increasing means that you can just pick it up anywhere. So, stay home. Okay. So, if a child is sick for fever, I always like to use a sponge bath, which is you get a a washcloth, use. Uh, tap water, wrapping your child in a towel, and then you you have two of those washcloths and you alternatingly put them on different parts of the body and then dry the child, right? So you don't want the child soaking wet. and that usually brings down a high fever. Of course, most moms know how to use paracetamol. If you have um, younger kids like two or three and below, it's one hundred and twenty five milligrams every four or six hours if they're older, maybe four or five, depends how big your child is, five years old, six years old, it's like 250 milligrams every four to six hours. But by all indication, right now, the cases seem to be mild. Now, if a child is is coughing, of course, you know, if if you have a doctor, the best is to consult, right? So consult the doctor, talk about it, and so on. And um, I would say hydration is probably also one of the most important home care remedies, right? Is that hydrate the child. So anything the child wants to, any kind of liquid, any kind of fluid the child wants, give it, uh, drink as much water as possible, and then have the child eat, okay? So we all know that when kids get sick, they don't want to eat, and sometimes parents become very finicky about this and will only insist on eating fruits or vegetables. Of course, I would say, yes, do that. But I'd also say, if your child wants to eat ice cream or potato chips, give it. You know, you need any kind of food inside that child in order to fight back. And hopefully, that will stimulate the appetite. Some will say, oh, dapat ganito, dapat ganyan. No, there's no dapat. Dapat kumain. You have the child has to eat anything the child wants to eat, candy, whatever it is, give them whatever they want to eat. Because they need that energy to, to develop an appetite and to go back to their, their regular regular eating. Um, sunshine is a good thing. We have lots of that in the Philippines. So being outside, getting fresh air. Uh, this is this is very important. In the morning sun probably from 6.30 to about 9 in the morning. 20 minutes of that gives you enough. A lot of vitamin D stimulates the production of vitamin D in the body, and that's really good for respiratory illness. And then sleep. Nothing recharges the immune system better than getting a good night's rest and getting sleep. So let let your kids go to sleep all they like. Keep them comfortable. Let them sleep and then again comfortable clothing no i i still i still see parents who like to wrap their kids up when they're having a fever no 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 you know they, they should be in cool in cool clothing so <laughs> that <laughs> okay <laughs> okay i gotcha. all right so 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 uh so yeah so this the basic just the basic things now One final point, which I think is probably the most important. Children pick up very quickly on the anxiety of mom. So moms really have to know how to calm themselves down. Whether you pray, you meditate, you walk, or I don't know what people do to calm down, or cook, or sew, or paint, or garden. And that feeling of tranquility or peace is something you give your children. If they feel that you're panicking, they're going to panic. And their panic will not be good for their recovery. You don't want them worried. You don't want them feeling like mom's in distress. Mom should never be in distress. Mom should always say, you're going to be fine. You know, just go to sleep. What do you want to eat? You know' it's just the usual caring thing um, and and not don't transmit your anxiety to your your children.
0: That's so important, Doc. Thank you. I was gonna ask you to to say a few things for all the moms listening, but I think I think that's that's perfectly said. Thank you so much, Doc. Siam know that kids can't pick up on the anxiety of the father. How come it's always on the mother?
1: It's also a mom, <laughs> no? No, no, no. no they, all, they, they also do.
0: Actually, they also also do. on the father. Oh, oh, okay. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They, they they pick up on the anxiety of the father as well. No, no, they, no, no. I, I said mother because because we are the first one to take care of the child. So actually, any caregivers' anxiety, they will yeah. pick up. They'll pick up on that. yeah
0: okay well doc i don't want to keep you um any longer i just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to guest on uh, mother of fact
1: thanks ricky hunker down stay home tell everyone to stay home these next two weeks right pretend that there's a big storm out there because there is one
0: mother of fact is proudly an anima podcast Check out other great content by following Anima online at animapods on Twitter and Instagram. Digging the podcast so far? Leave a rating and don't be shy to record a voice message for me. You might just end up in the next episode. Click the link in the description or hit me up online, it's at Ricky Flo.